Hey, you are listening to audio from Fairfield Church of Christ in Fairfield, Ohio. To learn more, get connected, or to support our ministries, visit werfcc.com. Last week, we looked at the introduction of Colossians, in which Paul is reminding the church uh, at Colossae of his love and his care for them, and especially during his time of imprisonment, which we'll talk about here in just a little while. Um, We also established the main idea that we'll see reinforced time and time again throughout the letter to the church at Colossae, this idea that Christ is preeminent that he is supreme, that Christ is above all else. So with that in mind, let's go ahead and read the entirety of our text for this morning. Then we're going to go back through and dig a little bit deeper into some of the notes here. So we'll go start in Colossians 1, verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of the body that is the church." of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And then we'll continue in chapter 2. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all those who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding in the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. In him in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Now, one thing I would really highly encourage you to do at least once as we go through this series on Colossians is to take some time and to read this entire letter as if you're receiving it for the first time, as if this letter is being written to you. If you have someone who you care about a lot that writes you a letter, you would read that in its entirety, pour over every word. This is a really easy book to do it with. It's only four chapters. It's pretty short and to the point, and um, it's very, very, very well written, but It's a good exercise to get into whenever you're reading any book of the Bible, but really especially the New Testament um, epistles and the letters, because, well, it's great that we take time to go through and break these things down week by week. It's also important to keep in mind the big picture as far as what Paul is trying to get at and teach the church at Colossae. This is a very well put together discourse that has different points that build on each other. It has a flow to it. And again, this overarching goal that Paul has to show you that in all things, Christ is preeminent. It's also important to keep in mind that as you read your Bible, that these are letters that are written to a specific group of people for a specific purpose. And so by knowing some of those things and knowing some of the history surrounding it, we can get a little bit better understanding as far as like what the big picture is and how we can better apply these things to our daily lives. So before we go too much further into actually like breaking down our text today, I just want to spend a little bit of time doing that so we can just have a little bit better view of this big picture of Colossians. 
So to start, let's just even talk about Colossae as a whole. Where was Colossae? Colossae was a city, not an enormous city, but it was a city located in modern-day Turkey. It's kind of right down there at the bottom. You kind of got it right next to Laodicea, Colossae. Right down there, not a huge major city, but it was a trade city that specialized in the production and trade of wool. So being a little bit of a commercial hub, it had a very diverse population. We see this idea of Romans, Greeks, and Jews, and then if you don't fall in one of those three categories, you would have been labeled as a barbarian in that time period. So you see this mention of Scythians in Colossians chapter 3, but really what it goes to show is that there is a diverse population and also that you've got people coming and going from various different places with different news, culture, and backgrounds. That'll all come into play here in just a little bit. So as far as the church in Colossae goes, we're not 100% sure as far as when the church at Colossae was founded, but we do know, obviously, because we have the book here, that the church at some point was founded. And then what we can see from chapter one is that there's this guy, Epaphras, who comes and we think might've had some role in establishing and building up the church. But now he is the one who is delivering a report to Paul about the church. And his report is very, very positive about the church. We see that there's fruit being born and that there's a lot of really great things happening at this church. Interestingly, we have no evidence that ever would state that Paul was able to visit this church. We kind of saw that a little bit in our text for today, that even though he's not been able to see them face-to-face and things like that, we see reference to him hearing about the church, but it's not included in his early missionary journey. So we're not sure that Paul ever got to visit or be with the church at Colossae. And a lot of that boils down to the fact that Paul was under house arrest at this point. His ministry had changed from his early days when he's able to just go out freely and proclaim the gospel, start these churches, build up these churches, go and visit them, to now being imprisoned because of his proclamation of Jesus. He's not able to do that. So he relies on reports from other people like Epaphras to be able to still work to the best of his ability to encourage and build up the churches. Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Philemon are all referred to sometimes as the prison epistles because they are written during this time in Paul's life when he is in confinement. So it kind of leads us to this question then as far as why write to the church at Colossae? Because again, when we look at the introduction to the Colossians, we see that this is a church that is thriving. It is a church that is bearing fruit. This is a church that Paul is praising for what they're doing. So why bother writing? I think there's less of a problem, like a major problem going on. Like if you look at 1st and 2nd Corinthians, there are some pretty major issues going on with those churches that required some correction. But with this church, what we start to see starting in 2.4 is less of a correction, and maybe more of a warning for the church. Colossians 2.4 says that Paul says this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. And then Colossians 2.8, if you skip ahead just a little bit, we see um, that Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy in empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So what Paul is doing is he is writing to counter the influence of various not Christ-centered philosophies and ideologies within the church because they are beginning to pull people away from the knowledge of Jesus Christ. This is an age 
of philosophy. There is a very, very high value placed on the exchanging and communication of ideas. And just like, even like following philosophy, like, oh, I follow this philosopher, I follow that philosopher. It's a very new age for all these things. You have writing material that becomes more accessible, so ideas are able to spread and things like that. Philosophy, to a certain degree, is almost followed by sports teams. Like, oh, man, I'm a big fan of Seneca over here. It's like, oh, man, like, I'm a big Aristotle guy. Like, we can't be friends or whatever. Um, so you have this kind of thing going on, but this worldly f- philosophy based upon human tradition and just elemental spirits, which we'll get into that in a little bit, um, these things are kind of bleeding into the church and drawing people away from Jesus Christ. So Paul has this challenge before him then of addressing these issues of philosophy. And he's not only up for the challenge, but he is also himself a very strong speaker. He's a very strong writer and a very strong thinker. So he's more than up to the challenge of this. And in this letter, he's going to be fighting a battle for both the minds and the hearts of the church to steer them back to the firm foundation of Jesus Christ. So begs the question then, which philosophical school in particular is Paul referencing? Which particular school of thought is getting at the church at Colossae? Again, this is where that diverse population comes into play. You've got all these ideas that are already there from these various cultures that are there, but again, being a trade city, it's like, oh, what news comes from Rome? What cool new idea has come along these days to, we, we can latch onto here? So, You can really kind of take your pick, but some common ones that historically we know were around at the time, and again, just for some maybe context clues we'll pick up later in the book of Colossians, we can kind of narrow it down to two ideas that might have been more prominent or might have been a little bit more influential at the time. And those two ideas are asceticism and Gnosticism. So asceticism is this idea, it's not necessarily... It's more of a lifestyle kind of practice. Like you might pair asceticism with something else. It might be a practice of another school of philosophy or another religion. But the main idea of it boils down to this denial of material goods and physical pleasures and honestly physical needs like food and water to free oneself from the distractions of this life. So what that's saying is that all of these physical material things, whether it's material goods, physical needs, or anything like that, those are distractions from what we're really trying to achieve over here. And I leave this side kind of open-ended and more broad because, again, this is more something you would use to achieve whatever end this might be. Um, Is anybody familiar with that guy sitting in the pot up there? Does anybody recognize that image at all? Oh, that's okay. We're good here. We're going to learn a little bit about some classical philosophy and some philosophers and stuff like that. So, That guy up there is um, Diogenes. Diogenes is probably the ascetic of all ascetics in the sense that he rejected pretty much everything and everyone kind of in the name of asceticism. Like, like, I don't know how much lower you can go besides living in a barrel because he rejected everything to the point of he had his barrel, his staff, that's it, and he had the wild dogs that followed him around. Those are the only things because he viewed all these other things not just material goods and even like food and things like that, but he also viewed people as distractions and just worthless. And he's actually the guy that we kind of attribute the idea and maybe term like someone being cynical to because of his rejection of everything. He was one of the founders of the school of thought of the cynic philosophy. It's kind of changed a little bit today, but this idea of someone being cynical is based off his life to a certain degree and his just complete rejection, his view that everything's pretty much worthless. I just need my barrel and my stick and my dogs and I'm good. 
kind of depressing there. Um, but that's asceticism. And where this starts to bleed into the church a little bit, maybe you've already started to pick up on this a little bit. But there are some that would look at Jesus' teachings, both then and now, and would say that Jesus was this um, ascetic teacher. He taught an aesthetic lifestyle. And to a certain degree, you can see elements of that. You know, there's elements of fasting that we see. We also see Jesus tell the rich young ruler to go and sell all he has and give it to the poor. So you start to see some similarities there and how, like, it can sound similar, but when you kind of dig beneath the surface and you start to thought experiment this thing out and follow the implications and follow it to its logical conclusion here, what you'll see is they reach very different ends. There's some nuance to all of this. Because when you look at just pure asceticism, again, you end up in a barrel with a stick and a dog. Because it's this complete rejection of everything. It is really this kind of self-edification. Like, my goal is, like, forget all of you guys. Like, you guys are just a distraction to me. Like, I need to get to this point here. I need to reach some level of enlightenment. Now, think about when Jesus calls us to humility. When Jesus calls us to give things up, it's not for our own glorification. It's so that we can live better in relationship with those around us. We embrace those around us. That's why we share the things that we have. That's why even with fasting, fasting is a very personal practice kind of thing, but we even see Jesus chastising the Pharisees because they would go out in the streets and say, oh, woe is me. Look how much I fasted. Look how skinny I am. Look how holy I am. Like, oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. They would go out and do that kind of thing, like make a big deal out of it. So that's what Jesus said. Don't go out and like blow a trumpet when you're, fasting or anything like that. That's not the point of that. There is this level of humility. And what we see in the difference between asceticism and what Jesus taught is that Jesus, again, has this humility that goes to build up the body of believers, the body of, the, uh, the body of Christ in the church. Whereas asceticism is really kind of a solitary and lonely thing that you're just striving for, unless you like wild dogs trying to eat you all the time. Maybe that's your thing. But that leads us to Gnosticism as well. So Gnosticism is another really common idea that, was, that the early church was up against. It was something that was, we see historically, we see come up time and time again kind of throughout the New Testament. It's more reference to like those elemental spirit kind of things or like this other spirituality or like secrets and things like that. What Gnosticism is, is this belief that emphasizes personal spiritual knowledge over orthodox belief systems. So where this plays out, kind of expand upon this a little bit, where this plays out is that Gnosticism will say that we all have some of the divine within us. So again, maybe you're already putting some, connecting the dots a little bit here. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Is that not the divine dwelling in the Christian as well? However, there is a very distinct difference in belief and why it's important to study and kind of think about these things. And, you know, it can sound kind of similar. It might even sound good, but there are differences because the way Gnosticism views this divine nature is not that God is dwelling with you. It is that you are divine. You have a nature of divinity to yourself. And I use divine God kind of interchangeably because, again, these things can kind of go a lot of different directions. But the central idea is that you have the divine within you. Versus when we think about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, it's not that we ourselves are divine. No. 
We have a God who loves us and has given part of himself to us to dwell with us and to be a helper with us. Do you see the difference there? You have God who comes to dwell with us versus I am some level of the divine or God. Maybe not that level of God because where these become incompatible is the Gnostic view of God or the ultimate deity or the divine and things like that is that God is so hidden and mysterious. He has no time or business for us um, and he is mysterious. And so the goal, some level of enlightenment, again, enlightenment, salvation, there's various goals and ends to all these things. But the goal of it was to attain this secretive knowledge. How do you attain secretive knowledge? This is where this kind of overlap of um, asceticism and Gnosticism can come into play because maybe you do it through prayer and meditation. Maybe you fast for a very long time until you can achieve this state of knowledge or spiritual revelation. Maybe, again, maybe there's some similarities you're starting to pick up on there where you can see how this sounds similar, but still is very different. Because where the difference breaks down is that with Gnosticism, once you've attained this secret knowledge, if you were so lucky or so devoted enough to this ascetic practice and you attained the secret knowledge, you're pretty special at that point. Because then you have a choice to decide, well, I could teach other people. I could have my own people who I teach how I achieved the divine. Or I could be the mouthpiece of God for other people. And I could reveal to them these secrets, this secretive knowledge about God. You're already feeling kind of icky. There's a reason for that because there is great danger and power in secrets. This is why cults are very dangerous and destructive. At a base, base level, a cult is this organization of secret knowledge. And where this is dangerous is, I have the secret knowledge. And if you want to get to that secret knowledge, you have to do X, Y, and Z. And then maybe I'll let you in a little bit, but if you want to reach the next level, you got to do this, this, this. If you're familiar at all with history or any of that, you know there's plenty of times and occasions that that has just led to some really horrible and awful things. Compare that to what Jesus has called us to. Jesus gave us the great commission to go, therefore, to all nations and proclaim this. Proclaim it freely. There is no secret knowledge. Paul talks a little bit about this mystery. It's a little bit of a nod towards this Gnostic idea, but we'll get into that here in a minute. Um, But it is now this freely given gift from God. There is no secret knowledge. And if you look at Jesus's ministry, there was never a time that Jesus tried to say, hey, if you want to follow me, like, Here's like the secrets or whatever. Jesus welcomed everybody into his ministry. He healed people who other people wouldn't touch. He touched people, the the untouchable. He welcomed the children to him. And again, you look at just the idea of the Holy Spirit. It's God being so humble and so loving that he gave us his only son. And now we have the indwelling of his Holy Spirit with us. They sound similar, but there's a difference But what I hope you can see is what Paul is up against here. These ideas that just can kind of sneak and worm their way into the church and begin to lure people away from following Jesus. You can even see how they might break the church apart due to their focus on self. 
And so Paul launches this counteroffensive in the book of Colossians, fighting to persuade his audience not to forsake Jesus for these various philosophies. It's this battle for the heart and mind of the church, not just the church at Colossae, but the church then and the church now. There really can be harm in wrong thinking and false teaching. I've said this before, that thought precedes action. Belief precedes action. It's important to have good thinking about these things. So, Let's go back now, and we're going to go back to um, 124. We're going to examine how he goes about this work with the church to prevent this from happening. So, Colossians 1, 24 through 29. Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory." Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Now, there's times that I'm reading that I come across something that feels like no matter how many times I read it, it just doesn't feel like it makes any sense. I don't know if you ever found yourself doing that. Um, And verse 24 is just... an perfect example of this, where if, if you're doing that read-through of it, you might read over it kind of quickly. And if you read it quickly, you might catch it a little bit, but it says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church. It's like, okay, so is Paul saying that what Christ did wasn't enough, and so now he's trying to somehow fulfill that. It's one of the things, even reading it out loud just almost makes it kind of more confusing. Um, But that's why one of my just absolute favorite verses in the New Testament, not necessarily for its great spiritual depth, but just more for the humanity side it shows in the um, epistles and the letters to these churches, is 2 Peter 3, 15 through 16. Because it says, count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand. That's that humanity side of it, recognizing like, yes, Paul sometimes writes some difficult things to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Hard to understand, but not impossible. And again, remember who Paul is up against. Remember what Paul is up against. He's going to be fighting fire with fire. He's going to to be flexing his rhetorical muscle just a little bit here so he can connect with his audience and show them truly that Jesus is greater. So what's he making reference to here really? What he's actually doing, he's making a really cool parallel reference to both the sufferings of Jesus Christ and the sufferings that are promised for the church. Because on the one hand of it, he's comparing what he's doing now to what Christ did for us on the cross. That Christ once and for all died for the church, suffered for the church, for the forgiveness of sins. So now, Paul similarly is giving his body for the building up and encouragement and growth of the church. 
This is a really common theme we see throughout the New Testament, throughout Paul's writings. Um, Particularly in 1 Corinthians 11, we see this list of beatings, shipwrecks, dangerous travels, and the daily pressure on him for the anxiety and care of all the churches. Now, all of that runs parallel to the fact that Jesus said there would be persecution. The world will hate you if you choose to follow him. Jesus never promised health and wealth, but... Now we can face trials and we can face life with a renewed sense of hope because of what Jesus has done. Which is why throughout his writing, not just here but in other places, Paul says that he rejoices in his suffering. It's a crazy idea to say that like, it's worth all the pain. All all the trouble it's caused me, all the things that it burns me with, it's worth it. Is it really worth following Jesus? According to Paul, 100% absolutely something that he did go and end up dying for. You see, he goes on to talk about how his goal is to make the word of God fully known, to reveal this mystery hidden for ages and generations. Again, we talked a little about the Gnostic side of things, about how you know, they had this great secret knowledge and had these mysteries and things like that, and there was great power and there could be problems in that. And the difference here is what Paul is kind of making a knock against Gnostic knowledge is he's saying there was this great mystery, but it is no longer a mystery. And it's not a mystery in the sense of like God is like hiding it from us because like, ha, 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 this is mine, not yours. What he's doing is there's this great plan. Again, this is the beautiful, beautiful part about the Bible is start to finish, there is an overarching story and picture, this beautiful story of redemption through Jesus Christ we see throughout Scripture. And the problem is sometimes we can live in the mindset of we live on this side of history a little bit too much and we forget that at that time, this is still a very new thing as the plan is kind of unfolding. But this plan is not secret. It has been revealed. It had been revealed in the early times, but it hadn't always been revealed. Like, it hadn't always been interpreted or seen with the perspective that God had seen for it. So this mystery that's being revealed is not a mystery or secret knowledge in the sense that Gnosticism would hold it. But Paul is showing that, hey, this was a mystery. This was a grand plan that has been revealed, and now it is available freely to everyone. And what's interesting to think about is when you look at and kind of study like how even God's people viewed this plan of the Messiah, God's plan for redemption, you kind of realize how maybe small and like earthly and temporal of a view they had of God's plan. Because what they pictured is this earthly king liberating them from their, from their oppressors. You see this promised king coming to redeem them. So we look at Rome and we say, well, they're doing a really good job of oppressing us. Maybe this is the time the Messiah comes and liberates us, liberates God's people. And then we can restore the kingdom of God's people and let it grow to its full glory again. But when Jesus came, he did so much more than our earthly and temporal perspectives can even just begin to comprehend. He rescued people from seemingly incurable afflictions and diseases. He challenged cultural barriers with how God called people to really live in relationship with one another. And the kingdom that was being restored was far bigger than anyone could imagine. So big, in fact, that it included people who were not originally God's chosen people, the Gentiles. This is very, very new for them at this point. They are no longer considered enemies, but are invited to come and be a part of this great hope in Jesus Christ. 
That's why the mystery that's being revealed is the person and work of Jesus Christ, that Jesus is God's son and that he died on the cross for the forgiveness of sins and that he rose again three days later so that we may now have a hope of eternity and a reconciled relationship with God. That is the mystery that's been revealed and it is made freely available to all people. This is the great hope that Paul strives to proclaim and even suffers for. Even in his imprisonment, he's doing the best that he can to ensure that everyone not only hears the message of the gospel for the first time, but is also able to grow in their understanding and application of the gospel message to be mature in Christ so that church can endure and grow for generations. I'm sure Paul didn't have an inkling of the year 2023 when he was sitting down and writing this, but we are here today because of this work, because of people who have faithfully followed and stayed true to the firm foundation of Jesus Christ. And he acknowledges this worthwhile suffering again once more in Colossians 2, just that for the first five chapters there. He writes, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of the understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I'm absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Not only here does he reemphasize his, the, na- the worthwhile nature of his suffering for the cause of Christ, but he also makes a point, this chal- he presents this challenge essentially to these worldly philosophies that in Christ you will find all you need in regards to wisdom and knowledge. This thing that philosophy and these different worldviews are trying to sell them, you will find all that you need in Christ Jesus. There are things that, again, are creeping into the church, but Paul is screaming out, you don't need those things. You have all that you need. You will find all that you need in Christ Jesus. Again, things that might sound similar or even kind of good. That's why Paul says you're hearing plausible arguments. He gives credit that, like, These sound kind of plausible. These sound kind of similar. But again, as you dig deeper, I hope that you realize that they are not worth it. Jesus is worth it because these have drastically different results and goals. Now, whether you realize it or not today, you are being sold so many different worldviews, philosophies, and values on social media, movies, TV, the news. Philosophy is truly everywhere. Schools of thought and values that try to shape how you live and, frankly, what you buy. Um, for example, if you just enjoy ruining movies or TV shows, this is a really fun trick you can do. Um, try at some point, if you're watching a movie next time, to remove yourself from the story a little bit. The stories can be good, but sometimes we miss the message because we're so invested in the story. But try and remove yourself from the story at some point and step back and look and ask yourself, what is the director? What is this show? What, whatever this is, what is this program? What is this really trying to teach me? What values is this instilling? What are the things that like, it's trying to shape and like, shape my mind and worldview to? It's one of those things, these questions I have to ask a lot right now. Is like, I, you know, I've got young kids. We like to watch TV. But, like, I have to ask, like, what are we letting them watch? Because sometimes you watch these kids' shows, and it's like, you're trying to push what on them right now? Like, 
It's not, and it's crazy because kids, they have no idea what's going on. But like from a young age, like they can start to feed some of these values and these ideas and ingrain them in people. And not just kids, but adults too. Like these things can just kind of slip in there into your life. But when you step back and you realize that and you're aware, you start to see like, oh, I see what they're getting at. And this is what Paul's trying to make the church aware of is like these things are coming in. Again, you've got people coming in from Rome. What's the next great idea in things like that? Pay attention because sometimes it can slip in there and begin to erode your faith and your hope in Christ Jesus without you even knowing it. They might not outright deny Jesus. Again, might be even good, might be kind of similar, but it slowly erodes us because we become distracted and uninterested. It can slip in slowly. We might find ourselves eventually living a life that doesn't even reflect at all how Jesus has called us to live. We begin to grow ineffectual and tossed and turned by the waves of life, and then we're just left chasing the next thing that's supposed to make our life better. Again, they've got stuff coming in from home. What's the next new thing? Like that asceticism wasn't very fun. The barrel was fun for a little bit, but it got old after a while. What's the next new thing that I can like improve my life with? And then we move on to the next thing. The next thing, we do the exact same thing today rather than standing on the firm foundation of Jesus Christ. And in 2 Timothy 4, 3 through 4, Paul recognizes this fickle nature of our hearts and minds. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but have itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. This is what Paul is fighting for in the church, both then and now, today. You might not be presented with outright Gnostic or outright ascetic belief, but again, if you pay attention, keep your eyes open and your ears aware of what's going on, you're being presented with so many things every single day. But Paul wants to show you that Jesus is greater than anything, and he's not worth forsaking for things that just change as quickly as the wind blows. Is it easy? following Jesus? No. But what Paul does a beautiful job of throughout the rest of the book of Colossians is to build on this idea that in all aspects of life, in our relationships and how we live on a personal level, that Jesus is supreme. So I encourage you, again, read ahead. Try and read this letter in a single sitting. This idea that Christ is supreme in all things will come out over and over and over again as Paul battles for the hearts and minds of the church both then and now. It might look a little different, but the goal is still the same. Now, as we close out our time together today, there's two really big main things I want you to take away from this just particular short section of Colossians. And the first is to observe the example. Observe Paul's example of his diligence and work to spread the gospel, the hope of Jesus Christ. Remember how much he gave in his life for the sake of spreading the gospel, the beatings, the danger he put himself in, and just the weight of caring for all the people in these churches. We are all called as followers of Jesus to be on mission, to go, therefore, and to make disciples of all nations. Now, it might look a little bit different. You might not be going halfway across the world to preach to someone who's never heard the gospel before in a different language, but you are still called to go, therefore, and make disciples regardless of wherever God has placed you in your life. 
You might be called to go make disciples in your workplace, your home, at school, wherever God has you, you are called to make disciples. And regardless of how you go about doing it um, or where you do it, it's going to be exhausting. It's going to take something of you. It's going to cost something from you, something physical, something emotional, mentally. It's going to exert you. And it may require that you give up time, energy, finances, rest, or comfort so that someone can hear the good news of Jesus. On the flip side of that, though, you may also be met with opposition, criticism, or hostility. You also might see people growing, which is so encouraging. But on the flip side of that, you'll also see people who, again, reject the message or might have once said, yeah, I like that, but then drift away from that. And it's frustrating, it's saddening, and it's very burdensome. This is the thing that Paul was talking about that really stood out to me when I was doing my um, study for this, is this weight of the burden of caring for the churches. Because oftentimes when we look at Paul's life and his missions and stuff like that, we focus on the beatings, we focus on the shipwrecks and all the other stuff he went through, the kind of physical um, opposition he went through. But there's also this great emotional and mental weight that Paul carries with him that he acknowledges. Because here's the thing, relationships, getting close to people, caring for people is a hard thing because people let us down. I can guarantee we've all been burned by somebody at some point in our lives. And when that happens, it can be really easy to want to shut down and like just distance ourselves from people and say, nah, no, 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 no more. It hurt too much last time. I'm tired of seeing people walk away. I'm tired of trying to tell you something and you just not listen. But that's the burden that comes with sharing the gospel and caring for people. And despite all of these things, Paul says it's still worth it, that the hope of Jesus is greater than any worldly pain, and Paul wants to make sure everyone knows it. So how does Paul press on? I love what he says in verse 29, that for this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. It's not Paul's energy. Paul has a finite amount of energy, as we all do. But even as we're maybe feeling stretched. We're kind of getting to like the end of it. I, I don't know if I can keep doing this. Paul points us back that it's not our energy we're working by. It's not the power we're working by. It's not even our message that we're communicating. It is this beautiful message of hope and redemption that God has given us. And the question comes down to you is, do you trust that God is going to provide and take care of you even when you feel like you've reached your breaking point or your limit? The last thing I want us to take away from today, and probably the most important thing you'll hear throughout the Colossians, is to heed the message. Heed the message that Christ is supreme above all else. Christ is preeminent. Christ is greater than anything in this world. Again, a theme you will see repeated over and over in Colossians and really, frankly, throughout um, Paul's other writings. He tries to always point people back to the person and work of Jesus Christ. So the challenge here comes in, not only heed the message, but also be able to evaluate your life based upon this message. Look at your interactions with others, the choices you make, both the big choices that maybe other people will see, but also those small things, those hidden moments that no one sees. Does your life truly reflect this message that Christ is supreme over all things, including your own life? Is he really the Lord of your life? 
it's challenging. And as we go through Colossians, you'll see Paul look at various aspects of how we can proclaim Christ to be supreme in our life. But ask yourself that question. Is he truly supreme in my life? And if you're not someone who would call yourself a follower of Jesus, I would hope maybe from today, or maybe you've come in today, you've tasted and seen what the world has to offer, and maybe you're in a spot where you say, you know what? I did that. It's not worth it. Christ is truly supreme. Maybe that is a decision you need to make and declare for yourself today. Thank you for listening to audio from Fairfield Church of Christ in Fairfield, Ohio. To learn more, get connected, or to support our ministries, visit werfcc.com.